I was thinking about uh, just the choosing of songs. I, I remember as a, a kid, sometimes when evangelists came in, they would have a piano player that would be with them. And during the service, uh, they would simply go, okay, well, uh, who's got some favorites? And there'd be a person to go, you know, I like this song. And somebody would say, I like this song. And I'd like this song. And they said, okay, that'll be the offertory tonight. And, you know, about five minutes later, the offertory would happen and the piano player would have some sort of grand piece where they would have put those together. And, and I just remember being just in awe of that as a kid because I thought, wow, you know, I have hard enough time getting one song together and having that prepared long in advance. And here's this guy who's just sitting there at the piano and he's told these are the three songs you need to play. In. And in five minutes, he's got it all organized and has this wonderful rousing piece that he's playing. And uh, I thought, well, you know, I'm glad I've never been in that kind of situation. But I have been in situations as a pastor where you kind of are somewhat put in the spot, but you've got some preparation. Uh, I remember with the teens, uh, periodically, you would uh, go, okay, are there any issues you would like me to talk about? Preach on. And they would send in cards. And of course, you had people that were just, you know, being funny and whatever else. And you're like, okay, those aren't going to count. But, uh, but you had some, you know, serious issues. And okay, we'll deal with that because somebody's obviously trying to go, okay, what's the Bible answer on this? Uh, and be able to do that. Well, I kind of have that situation tonight because I was uh, given a passage of scripture that I'm going to preach tonight. And uh, it's one that I am thankful uh, that it's a familiar passage but uh, it is one that is familiar and an encouragement to all. And I want us to take our Bibles this evening and turn to Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40. There are many famous statements out of the book of Isaiah, but this chapter, perhaps outside of Isaiah 53, is one of the most quoted and the most well-known passages, just statements and words and phrases that people are like, oh, I've heard that before. One pastor preaching this back in the 1950s made this statement about this whole chapter. He said, I think by any computation or from any angle whatsoever, Isaiah chapter 40 must be regarded as one of the most eloquent and moving chapters in the Bible. It is one of those mighty statements that we can safely say are never to be found outside the Bible itself. For language and balance and phrasing, for the thought, for the lilt, the cadence of the expression, it is incomparable. And therein perhaps lies a certain danger with respect to this great chapter. The danger is that one may read it uh, in a kind of literary or artistic or aesthetic manner only and thereby fail to understand what is really being said. For we can be certain that this chapter was never written merely from the standpoint of just literature. See, what you have in Isaiah chapter 40, and just to give you a little bit of background is this, is that you've gone through chapters 1 through 39, and in the book of Isaiah, there's a lot going on, but it's basically telling that the nation of Israel is going to be under the judgment of God. They were God's people, but they had gone and done their own thing. They had followed other gods and other nations and just did their, their thing, and so God said there's judgment coming. But he is gracious even in judgment because the people that were judging the nation of Israel was the nation of Assyria. And uh, they actually, as you read the book of Isaiah, come right up to the gates of Jerusalem. 
but Jerusalem thankfully had a godly king by the name of Hezekiah who was seeking the Lord and God graciously held off his judgment on the nation of Israel and gave them a chance to, to well, for a number of years, uh, well, seek him. Problem was the nation of Israel was going to fall back into their old habits and their own ways and, and seek after other gods to satisfy them and, and seemingly take care of their needs. And so the nation of Israel was once again going to be carried off into captivity. And a lot of what God has to say is that there's going to be judgment and that the nation is going to be carried off into captivity. But you get to Isaiah chapter 40, and for the next uh, 27 chapters, you have uh, a, a set of songs, really about nine chapters in length. If you just kind of go every nine chapters, you've got a new section that is dealt with uh, there. But it's a song proclaiming much about the servant of the Lord. Uh, one who is going to come and deliver the nation of Israel, one who is going to be able to help them. And right in the middle of the whole section itself in Isaiah 53 is the passage that we find that we, like sheep, go our own ways. We've turned everyone to our own ways, but yet you find one who is willing to take upon him uh, the judgment that we deserve. And you find that by his stripes we are healed. But that's right in the middle of this whole passage that's here. It's a passage designed to encourage the nation of Israel to look to their God, not to look at the gods surrounding them and the nations surrounding them, but to find a strength and a health and an energy in knowing the one true and only God. And so what you have is an introduction in Isaiah chapter 40 is this passage that is, well, in some ways familiar to us. Because if you've ever read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you'll find statements like what we have in the very first verse. Comfort ye, comfort ye my people, saith our God. Speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem, and cry unto her that her warfare is accomplished, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she hath received the Lord's hand double for all her sins. And then verse 3, this is where you get the gospel stories. The voice of him crying in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted. And it goes on. See, what we find is that what the Lord is saying for the nation of Israel to find the true comfort that they're going to have is that there's one who's going to come, yet future, and his way is going to be prepared. Now, we know from that account, it's John the Baptist that's preparing his way. He's described as this one who's crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. Get prepared to meet your God. And for the nation of Israel, what uh, you find is that they needed to depend upon this God. You say, why is that? Well, you find that in verse number six, a voice saith, cry. And he said, what shall I cry? It says this, that all flesh is grass. And all the goodliness thereof is as the flower of the field. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth. Because the Spirit of the Lord bloweth upon it. Surely the people is grass. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth but the word of our God shall stand forever. See, a reminder in this passage of that the Lord is going to bring blessing, there's a reminder of our own frailty that we are like, well, the flowers that you see come up here in the spring as they're now beginning to sprout, but get a little bit of time here and they'll be dying and you'll have to clear them out. 
Perhaps there's too much sun and not enough rain or you get to the fall and just by the natural processes, uh, those flowers and those plants die. So we are like that. Our length of days is not firmly established by us. We don't get to choose how long we're going to live and how long we're going to have. So there is in this life dependence upon one who knows our frame that is but dust. And for us, we need to trust him and put our confidence in him and it's at this point when you get into this psalm and you get to verse number 12 you begin to have a series of questions in fact as you read through and if i've got my count right uh, starting there uh, you have at least 13 questions that go through and are questions that in some ways don't need answers but they're questions about what is God's character like? This one who, as we go through life and the frailty of it, we need to put our trust and confidence in. And the questions are designed for individuals to realize that this is a God that's unlike anyone or anything else in this universe. And as one has described it uh, in preaching through a passage like this, they say this, that this is the all-sufficient God. He's everything that we need. We don't need any, anyone else or anything else. And for us, uh, in reading through this passage, we just need to get set because really the passage Doris wants me to get to is verses 28 to 31, but we've got to get this background of understanding who God is. What is He like? Verse 12 starts this way, Who hath measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, and meted out heaven with a span, and comprehended the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in a scale, and the hills in a balance? Who hath directed the Spirit of the Lord, or being his counselor, hath taught him? With whom took he counsel, and who instructed him, and taught him in the path of judgment, and taught him knowledge, and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are as a drop of the bucket and are counted as the small dust of the balance. Behold, he taketh up the isles as a very little thing. And Lebanon is not sufficient to burn, nor the beast thereof sufficient for a burnt offering. All nations before him are as nothing, and they're counted to him less than nothing and vanity. To whom then, verse 18 says, to whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare unto him? The workman melteth a graven image, the goldsmith spreadeth it over with gold, casteth silver chains. He that is so impoverished that he hath no oblation or sacrifice, chooses the tree that will not rot, he seeketh unto him a cunning workman to prepare a graven image that shall not be moved. Have ye not known? Have ye not heard? Hath it not been told you from the beginning? Have ye not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he that sitteth upon the circle of the earth, and the inhabitants thereof are as grasshoppers, that stretcheth out the heavens as a curtain, and spreadeth them out as a tent to dwell in, that bringeth the princes to nothing. He maketh the judges of earth as vanity. Yea, they shall not be planted. Yea, they shall not be sown. Yea, their stock shall not take root in the earth. And he shall also blow upon them. They shall wither as the whirlwind shall take them away as stubble. Verse 25, to whom then will ye liken me? Or shall I be equal, saith the Holy One? 
Lift up your eyes and high. And behold, who hath created these things that bringeth out their host by number? He calleth them all by names, by the greatness of his might, for that he is strong in power, and not one faileth. Why sayest thou, Jacob? And speakest, O Israel, my way is hid from the Lord, and my judgment is passed over from my God. I'm going to stop there. Because what God is doing is by this answer or asking of questions is just getting these people to understand what God is like. Because what does humanity do with their knowledge of God? Romans chapter 1 makes very clear that sometimes when they look at the world around them, they could understand God's eternal power and Godhead. They could understand that there's a God out there and he's a God of great power. The problem is, is that they are not thankful And they don't glorify him as God, but what they do oftentimes is that they create gods of their own casting. Uh, They worship things like the four-footed beasts and, and the things that creep and the things that fly. And even man themselves, they make into a God. The problem with all of us is that we think that God is like us and things that we can actually see in the universe, that he's like those things. And the fact is, is he's so far beyond those things and who he is and what he's capable of. When you think about God being all-sufficient, the first thing that you have to understand from this passage that the God that is in heaven is one who is all-powerful. He's all-powerful. I mean, there are a number of things here that just kind of show the great power of God, and you could just kind of run over it, but if you stop and think about it, uh, it's something quite amazing when it comes to things like measurement. It talks about the waters of the earth. Verse 12, who hath measured the waters in the hollow of his hand. I mean, how much water can you hold in your hand? You know, you did this as a kid probably where you went around and you had somebody take the garden hose and they pour it in there and you're like holding it and seeing how much water you could hold. And, and you know, it was a miracle that was anything there. But even in the most concentrated effort, you're not going to have a whole lot of water in your hands. But think about this, when it comes to the earth and the estimates that we have that how much water is on the earth, one has figured out this way, it would be a ball that was about 840 miles in diameter if we were to take all the water that's on the earth. For God, this is just like something that he would merely hold in his hand as a drop. For us to try and gather the waters around us in the oceans would be an impossible task. For him, nothing. It talks about the heavens that are, well, he meted out or measured out the heavens with a span. Say, what's a span? It's not a measurement that we normally use anymore, but it talks about basically going from the tip of the, the one pinky finger, we might say, to the thumb and the distance between the two. I learned uh, at, uh, well, in my middle ages uh, that it's very important as a piano player to have big hands because you can cover more territory. Uh, but, you know, in average, uh, you, if you have fingers that are about nine inches in a span, you, you can cover about nine notes on the piano, which is really great because that's bigger than an octave. But for God, the whole universe is like the span of his hand. 
you find that it's just merely this and what most people have figured out that uh, perhaps as you think about the distance and it keeps changing year after year, the distance uh, from one side of the universe to another right now, or at least recently, the numbers are something like 15 billion light years. And you go, what's a light year? If you were to travel at 186,000 miles per second, for uh, over 15 billion years, you might get from one side of the universe to the other, but they keep finding out it's getting larger because they're able to see further and further with telescopes and recognizing that fact. God's able to weigh the earth in the balance. That's kind of the illustration there. Uh, you kind of go, well, how heavy is the earth? One has figured it out that in pounds it would be 132 with 23 zeros after it as far as pounds. For God, it's just like a, well, a piece of dust on a scale as far as the weight of those things. When it comes to the nations, as you look through the passage here in verse number 15, behold, the nations are as a drop of a bucket and counted as the small dust of the balance. I mean, we've crossed over 7 billion. We're getting close to 8 billion, if that's not already happened, as far as the number of people on the earth. You know, you view nations by the amount of people they have, and some nations have over a billion, billion and a half people. You know, and you go, those are mighty nations because of the amount of people that they have. When it comes to God, it doesn't matter how many people there are, those nations still have no ability to affect Him. They're like dust. You ever thought about this? You walk through dust all the time, and it never, never even affects you. They even notice that it's there. That's kind of what the nations are in comparison to what God is like. There are things at times that are difficult for us. I don't like household projects because they're usually not going to go as well as you think they're going to go. Remember years ago, I got a book from Home Depot and it's basically simple projects. And so they have these very simple household projects that they have, but up in the corner they have this, this thing that's there, and it's, well, it says the project for a, you know, a novice should take four hours, uh, someone with medium capabilities two hours, and somebody who's professional will take them an hour. And what I did is I took that number that was for the novice and multiplied it times three, and that's usually how long the project lasts. Simple projects are, are not something that I enjoy. And for others, it, it, it's an easier thing. But for God, you think about when He hung the heavens. You see this in verses um, 22, the end of the verse there. He's one who stretched out the heavens as a curtain and spreadeth them out as a tent to dwell in. Basically for God, when it came to setting up the universe, it was like just hanging a curtain or setting up a tent, the whole of the universe with everything in it. It was not difficult for him. 
leaders that sometimes think they're so great and powerful as we have seen some flex their muscles recently and and think that they are leaders can make life difficult here on the earth and and can oppress others and make life difficult for them when it comes to leaders god's not affected uh, them by them He's able to take the nations, uh, verse 23, and bring princes to nothing and make judges of the earth as vanity. Uh, that word vanity is just nothing. He can bring them to nothing. Leaders who are so great in our universe, nothing in comparison to God's power. In an instant, he can depose them. And he can do that. And so you look at what the Scripture has to say, that God is mighty. In fact, as you, you think through this that god has the ability as you look at verse number 26 that he's got the ability to call out the hosts by number he calleth them all by name now sometimes that word host is talking about angels but uh, in this case it's probably talking about the stars and the galaxies and everything and it says that he's got them all named you know i thought about that for him to be able to call them out and move them as he wants to but then he's got them all named We've got companies right now that are selling, you know, you can name a star after someone. Big deal. You know, first you've got to find it, but there's billions of other ones. So it's not really all that impressive that you have one single star named after you. But with God, he's got them all numbered. He knows where they're at and he's got them going where he wants them to go. This God is one who is all powerful. But secondly, as you look at this passage, he's a God that is all-knowing. There are things, uh, you look at verse number 13, you find this one of these first questions, it says this, Who hath directed the Spirit of the Lord, or being his counselor, hath taught him? Do you not realize this, that God never went through any sort of school or education? He's always been infinitely wise. There's never been anyone who has taught him. Uh, this is a fascinating fact for the Apostle Paul as he closed out his section on God working out the salvation of both the nations and the nation of Israel. And he gets to the end of it in Romans 11 and verse 33. He says this, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgment, his ways past finding out. For who hath known the mind of the Lord or who hath been his counselor? You just kind of go, he, he's a God that has never taken any sort of advice. I mean, you have that, he's never been taught, nor does he have any sort of advisors. You look at this passage, and who has given him counsel or instructed him or done that type of thing? God's never received counsel before, though we are quick to give him counsel. You know, we're quick to counsel him on his ways and say, well, you should do this and this. But it's not that he's up there and going, wow, that was, that's a unique idea. Never thought of that. No, it's that he has thought that. Verse 21 indicates the fact that he's never without an answer. Have you not known? Have you not heard? Hath it not been told you from the beginning? Hath ye not understood from the foundations of the earth that it is he that sitteth upon the circle of the earth? He knows how the foundation of the earth happened. 
You know, there's, there's all these questions. You remember as a, as a parent with young children, they'd always go, you know, mom, dad, why is this? And you'd finally just get to the point of, because it was made that way. I don't know. You know, why is that there? I don't know. Well, when it comes to the foundations of the earth, we're still trying to gauge what the foundation of the earth is like. It changes about every 10 to 15 years. What's actually in the core of the earth? They haven't really figured out yet, but God knows. He knows those things. It's not without an answer. He's never had a failure of any kind. Verse 27, Why sayest thou, O Jacob, and speaketh, O Israel, my way is hid from the Lord, and the judgment is passed over from my God. God's never missed out, made a mistake, ever failed. You go, why is that? Because he's all-knowing. And you get to verse 28. We haven't read this yet. But it says this, Hast thou not known? Hast thou not heard that the everlasting God, the Lord, the Creator, the ends of the earth, fainteth not, neither is weary? There is no searching of His understanding. There's never an end to His knowledge. That's part of the thing of, of the glory of being in heaven someday is that you'll be, able to talk, you'll be able to talk to God and you can ask any question and you still won't have scratched the surface of what God knows. I mean, this is that God is, uh, this passage, He's all-powerful, He's all-knowing, but He is, we put it this way, God is separate, or we might say holy in some cases. Verses 18 through 20. And understand what that word holy means. Sometimes when you talk about things and people being holy, we're talking about, okay, that person doesn't have sin and that kind of thing. But when it comes to the Scripture, it really kind of emphasizes this, that this one is unique, set apart. God is unlike anything else in the universe. And when it comes to uh, this world, we often try at times try and create what He's like. Mankind's been doing this for generations. They, as you read in verses 18 through 20, there's individuals who are taking metal and shaping it and forming it into what they think God's going to be like. But if you're poor, you just go out and cut down a tree and, and then you take that tree and you carve it up and that, that's your God. Isaiah eventually, when you get to chapter 44, just talks and mocks the people that make gods like this. Because he goes, okay, you, you cut them out and they have ears they can't hear. They have eyes they can't see. They have lips they can't speak. And then they have feet, and guess what? You have to carry them around because those feet don't work. And anything that man comes up with, they think, okay, this is what God would be like and sort of like, and whatever we, it is, it is going to fall far short of what God's like. Because you go, what? There's nothing else to really compare him with because he is holy. He's unique. And you think about this, he's transcendent. You go, oh, wow, big term there. But the idea is that he's so far above everything else. Verse 22, it is he that sitteth upon the circle of the earth, and the inhabitants thereof are as grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens as a curtain and spreadeth them out as a tent to dwell in. He's basically this, it, he's above everything So that might get us to think, okay, this God who's so great and so powerful and all-knowing that he's very distant from us, and the answer is, no, he's not. In fact, what he calls for us to do is for us 
to put our trust and confidence in him that's what he's calling us to do because that's what you get to in verse 28 to 31 I mean, we read this as statement, Hast thou not known, hast thou not heard the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth, fainteth not, neither is weary. There's no searching of his understanding. And then verse 29, he giveth power to the faint. And to them that have no might, he increases strength. Even the youths shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary and they shall walk and not faint. You know, the person who has a confidence in God has a strength and a might that's really unexplainable. They put their confidence in God and they are solid They aren't easily shaken by events in the world. They aren't moved because they are ones who are waiting, or we might put it this way, they've got their trust, their confidence, they're resting upon God. And when the rest of the world is running out of energy and has wearied themselves and this, there are individuals whose strength is firm and solid. And you go, why? It's not because of who they are. It's because of who their God is. And I take confidence in this because some would mock a passage like this at the end of verse 31. You know, hey, you have people that are trusting in the Lord, but they're not running any races. Doris, I don't think you've run any races. You've done a lot of things that I'm not sure I would be doing at 99, but I'm sure you've not run any races. But guess what? Those that wait upon the Lord, that will be true someday. They will ultimately renew the strength. Our body that falls apart here on this earth and is collapsing and will one day become dust will one day be renewed. Remember talking to some individuals about two years ago and they finally understood what it meant what heaven included, that they were going to be resurrected and have new bodies, one being 93 years of age and the other one being 87, the man looked at his wife and just said, guess what? One day we're going to be able to run up and down the streets of gold. That this body that has been broken down and collapses in this life, one day God is going to raise anew. He's promised this. Now, it's not because of anything that we're deserving of. No, it's because of His Son and His great sacrifice on the cross. I mean, that's what the first part of this passage is talking about, that there's one coming who can save and who can rescue, and that's Jesus Christ. Doris, at a young age, accepted Christ as her Savior. And that's made all the difference because she knows this God that we've talked about here is her God. That this God is the one who has taken her through this life and been an encouragement and a strengthening to her. That though this body might break down and things might not go perfectly in this life, there is ultimately one day going to be a complete renewing of strength. And that can be said for all of us. If we are ones who have this God 
who's the all-sufficient God who can meet daily needs of life, but is also one who can meet our needs for eternity. If this one is your God, then you've got everything you need for this life and the life to come. That's the testimony of Doris. She's thankful for what the Lord has given to her, and he's renewed her strength day after day, year after year, and given her strength. But it's not because of who she is that her frame is somehow better than everybody else's frame or anything like that. God's been very gracious to her and given her everything that she needs, but one day she'll be in his presence enjoying the presence of God the God that has given her so much in this life and will one day give her more than abundantly above all that she could even ask or think when she gets to eternity. This is a great God who can, in this life, give us the encouragement to soar as eagles when the rest of the world's not, but can one day give us the energy to be completely renewed forever. And so he is a great God, worthy of praise for what he has done. And we did close uh, uh, with our singing as a congregation with How Great Thou Art. That's a good song to match up to a passage like this. And so as you think about this throughout the week and this passage throughout the week, that's a good song to remind you of that God is great. And he is willing to be your God and wants to be every day. Lord, we thank you. You're a God who gives abundantly above all that we could ever ask, even ask or think. You sent your son into this world to take care of the impossible problem for us, and that was to pay for our sins that we couldn't pay for ourselves. And we're thankful for your son who makes, well, eternal life possible, but Lord, we're also thankful for who you are. That you're not like us. We're thankful for that. But that you are infinitely capable in all of your ways and who you are. And that you are all that we need. You're sufficient for the demands of life. Lord, may we not wander astray. We tend to wander quite often, but help us to once again get back in focus to recognize that you are the one that we truly need. So we thank you for passages like this that ask us questions, that remind us of what you're like. May we not wander from you, but enjoy walking in your presence all of our days. And then enjoy that great eternal day where we'll be in your presence forever. We thank you. We praise you. In your son's name we pray. Amen.